After Easter and Christmas, the festival of Pentecost celebrating the birth of the church is the most important day on the Christian calendar. My guest is Dr. Robert Brenneman, who has researched the ethnic groups represented at Pentecost and where they are today. Welcome. This is the Unconventional Ministry Podcast, where the conversation is about fresh ideas in ministry, innovative approaches, and collaborative efforts. I'm your host, Dennis Weens, Vice President for Ministry Partnerships at SAT7 USA. My guest today is Dr. Bob Brenneman, a professor at North Central University in Minneapolis, and he's the specialist on global studies and languages. You're also a part of the College of Church Leadership's Middle East Specialist, one of the first uh, Assemblies of God world representatives to live amongst the Kurdish people of the Middle East and North Africa. So Dr. Brenneman, welcome to the Unconventional Ministry Podcast. Well, it's a privilege to be with you. I know that you say you and your wife Sherry raised your kids in the location amongst the people of Acts 2, 9 through 11. I thought that was, rather than give a geographical area, you gave a scriptural reference. So we want to talk about Pentecost today. I know you have a special interest in Pentecost and the ethnic groups that were present, and then we want to pursue where they are today. But let me ask you first, uh, where did this special interest in the ethnic groups present on the day of Pentecost, where did this special interest start? Well, you know, it's very significant, Dennis. This is Pentecost Sunday coming up, and so this is probably the third most important day in the church calendar, uh, right? Actually, crossing the resurrection, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is right up there, the birth, of course, of Jesus. So it's it's right up there among the most important days. Um, this interest started me when I was a pastor in inner city Chicago. I was pastoring an inner city church. And I wanted to do missions for a long time, and I thought in those days, my, I'd be into the communist world. I, my heart went out to those that did not have Bibles, and I read the stories of the different Bible smugglers, like Brother Andrew, who was one of my, my heroes, how they smuggled Bibles into communist countries. And we tried to do that, and, and we were caught with those Bibles. But when, the last place we went to on this trip, my first trip overseas, we went to a number of communist countries, but we ended up in Turkey, our last place. And that's not communist. It was Muslim, but I knew nothing about Islam in those days. I didn't know what a Muslim was. But all I knew was that in this country at one time, the apostles preached, Paul was born there, Antioch and Ephesus and, and Laodicea and Galatia, all these places, and Tarsus are in Turkey. How now it's considered it was considered the least evangelized country in the entire world. So how did that happen? So it began to haunt me. It's haunted me for over 42 years now as I've studied this whole area. How did it happen? How did the church lose the Bible Belt of the world? It became now one of the least evangelized areas in the world. And so from there, I just began to study it. And it's been kind of a study over the last many, many decades of the church in those days and uh, what each of the churches today are. And Acts 2, 9 through 11 as we'll probably talk about more more specifically, are the people groups mentioned in that portion of Scripture. I never heard anybody else preach on, uh, of course, the first part they preach on all the time, you know, about how the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. The latter part, when Peter's great sermon, one of the greatest sermons ever preached, is, is talked about. But those verses from 9 through 11 talks about the very people that received the Holy Spirit that day and what happened to them. And 12 of those 15 people groups now are Muslim. Right. So that's kind of what we focused on. So give our listeners an idea of your background. You're a professor at uh, North Central University. You have a specialty in Middle East. Uh, you travel extensively. But you've also lived, raised your family amongst the Kurdish people, right? Yes. 
the Kurds are one of those people, Old Testament and into the New. They're referred to probably as the Medes. Um, it's always hard to prove 100% where the, the biblical Medes are the Kurds today, but the evidence is quite good. The um, When the uh, northern kingdom of Israel was exiled, you might remember the first 10 tribes, they were exiled to the land of the Medes. And that's where Kurdistan today, Iraq is. In fact, we lived on the very river it mentions in 2 Kings, the Habur River among the land of the Medes. It was biblical Assyria. And so together throughout biblical history, the Assyrians and the Medes were, were pretty close together. It could even be possibly said that the Assyrians were mostly Christian. The Medes became, Kurds became mostly Muslim, but basically they come from the same pretty close to the same ethnic stock. And that, that's another one of those areas I don't want to try to uh, spend too much time debating uh, on that. But the point of it was, is that the Kurds probably uh, lived side by side with Jews for, for several hundred years. And, and also in the book of Daniel, you'll see that um, the, the king that threw Daniel in the lion's den. And then when Daniel, when God spared Daniel, he was so, wow, I want all the people in my kingdom to worship the God of Daniel. His name was Darush, or Darius, as we usually say it, but the, the, the Kurds were called Darush. He was a Mede. So was he uh, was he a Kurd then that said, I want all the people in my kingdom to worship the God of Daniel? So there's there's no doubt there were certainly uh, Jewish communities in Kurdistan right up until Israel became a nation in 1948. And there's very seldom we'll see a Kurdish person make an anti-Semitic remark. They may not know that they're connected. They don't know their history, but they have some sense that you know, they're just not anti-Jewish like or anti-Semitic like so many uh, other Muslim groups are. And then later, of course, on the day of Pentecost, we see that group again as one of the 15 groups that that uh, received the Holy Spirit that day. So my, right. my, my, my speculation probably is, is that the people that received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost were, of course, Jews and you know, and those that had come to come, come to Judaism. And uh, when once the okay was given for them to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, as, as Peter did with, with Cornelius, and he went to a, a Gentile home and said, hey, the Gentiles are supposed to receive this message as well. Uh, probably those that came from that area of media would go then and share the gospel with their with those around them. And this was like 600 years before Islam. And so they were probably mostly Zoroastrian or pagan, and they received the gospel then. And so um, later, then, of course, the Kurds became most predominantly Muslim uh, about 10 centuries after that. So you didn't just visit the Kurds. You immersed yourself in their culture. You lived amongst them for over a decade. You mm -hmm. speak fluently their language. And you've written several books. One is As Far as the Mountains, A Kurdish Cultural Journey. And you've also uh, more recently published Rekindling the Fire Amongst the Nations of Pentecost. So just letting our listeners know that you're very well adversed in and knowledgeable in the Middle East studies. And we want to look at the day of Pentecost. I know you've identified uh, 15 ethnic groups that were present, but 12 of them have a special interest for you. So let's go to the day of Pentecost, Acts, Acts 2, verse 9 through 11, and talk a little bit about the 12 that were there. And you, in your book, trace the history of the church to where they are today. So I think it's fascinating to look at who was there and where are they today. So let's start in the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost. Well, thank you. Uh, let's do that. Uh, I would mention that my the book is actually, I, I, I made a copy of the book and it, it was a mistake. It's called, if anybody wants to order, it's as, as strong as the mountains. And uh, uh, for it's on Amazon and, and uh, as well as uh, 
other things I've written. Um, so it talks about a number of groups here. One are the Parthians, and that was today's Iran. And that was an older name for the Persian Empire. Uh, obviously, the, the people are split into different groups and different uh, confederations. But the Parthians were one of the, we call them the Iranian peoples or the Persian peoples. It's Medes, who we just talked about, whose, whose ancestors are probably the present-day Kurds. You know, the Kurds have suffered so much under Saddam Hussein. And then they were also the main main warriors against ISIS. And they won a lot of respect from the world community the way they stood up to ISIS when almost nobody else did. And so they've been, um, they're the largest people group in the world without a country. They're divided among in Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. And that's why I did my doctoral research on and, and uh, have been very interested in them for 40 years. The Elamites are the next one mentioned in that scripture. And they're also an Iranian people. They go back a, a long way, and uh, all these groups, so these groups, some of them can be traced all the way back to Noah. Um, as the media, it can be traced back to Noah, and, and uh, some of these groups can be traced back pretty far. Uh, put it that way. The Elamites, all those are, are residents of, of uh, what's today's Iran. This is residents of Mesopotamia, which is today's Iraq. And, of course, that's the cradle of civilization. Uh, Abraham was from Mesopotamia. And uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that were the where the end is where the Garden of Eden allegedly was. That's um, that's that that area uh, in southern Iraq where most likely the Garden of Eden was at one time. And so that's another strategic area of, of Iraq. And so Iraq has a huge role in biblical history called Babylon, or other word Mesopotamia, the Aramaeans, different people groups from that time period. Get a lot of biblical biblical history. Judea, of course, is, is, is one of the non-Jewish, non-Muslim areas. It's, there's 15, 12 of them are now predominantly Muslim. Judea is one of the ones that's not. Uh, but then there's five groups that are all in Turkey today. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, and Pamphylia. And of course, Turkey now is over 99% Muslim, and God's doing a new work there, and we're thankful, but still in a very long, slow, hard process uh, there's always been kind of an attitude of that, um, well, Christianity was defeated in Turkey. So why would anyone choose to, to, to work on a, to, to come to a losing religion when God must be on the side of, of Islam? And so that's been a hard thing to deal with. Um, the whole idea that you're, if you're a Turk, you're a Muslim. If you're a Kurd, you're a Muslim. Um, even if you don't practice it, you're still, that's who you are. And so that's been a very, very challenging area to deal with. And then just the last few here is after the five in Turkey, there's Egypt, which is one of the ones that have maintained their name up to this day. Egypt is about 89 to 90% Muslim, although Egypt does have a, a 10% Christian minority. And, uh, what's interesting is that the Coptic people, the a true Egyptian is really a Copt. The Muslims came in as Arabs into Egypt and invaded the area. And a lot of people converted, but those that did not convert stayed Coptic, are called Coptics or, or Christians. And they're probably really the true Egyptians in a sense, but they've also suffered a lot in that country. And uh, it's one of the areas that was not totally overwhelmed by Islam, unlike some of these other areas where there's almost no Christians left. Egypt did maintain a, a Christian presence. And, and probably that is because there's a, a Bible in, in the language at that time, as well as there was a, a heritage there that they were able to resist uh, becoming uh, Islamicizing totally. And so a remnant has stayed Christian in that area. Through all these uh, centuries has had a remnant in these ethnic groups. And I know today we talk about Eastern Church, and mm -hmm. a lot of these have a representation there. Talk to us a little bit about this witness and the work of the Eastern Church 
And who are some of the major denominations within the Eastern Church? Sure, okay. be glad to do that. The only other one here is would be Libya, um, and that's uh, some books that say Cyrene, Libya near Cyrene. Cyrene, uh, Simon, who first would carry Jesus cross was from Libya, and then there's Rome, of course. And that's not uh, that's not Muslim, and Creed is not Muslim; it's Greek Orthodox. And then the Arabs, of course, the Arabs are predominantly Muslim, the uh, largest of the Muslim people groups. So if you if you want to just condense it down, and then I'll t- to this, Dennis, it'd be that the four people. Of our, or the, the, these people could be kind of condensed down today, if we take all that history and, and uh, division of ethnic groups and so on, it comes down to Arab, Turkish, Iranian or Persian, and Kurdish. All these groups, now the, the, the five they mentioned in Turkey, Turkey was never predominantly Christian at that time. These were, these were people that Turks came in from outside and into Turkey. But these other groups were people that a lot of them then um, over time converted. And this is where the, your question comes in, Dennis, on the Eastern Church. In the early days, the church was um, focused in, of course, in the Holy Land. And Antioch was the center of the church, you know, where, where Paul began his missionary journeys. And from there, the, the gospel kind of went west into what's today's Turkey and then all the way to Greece and, and, and uh, into Europe. But what's not recorded in the Bible as much is when the gospel went east. And that was started by St. Thomas, who's really considered the father of the Eastern Christians. He was the one that him and his disciples took the gospel into, to, into parts of southeast Turkey and south Turkey. And then they took it into Persia and Persia into Central Asia. And from Central Asia, as far as, as, uh, as India, St. Thomas himself is probably martyred in India. And then some of his followers took the gospel all the way to China. They were the real heroes of the faith as far as spreading the gospel. In the fourth century, something happened that has been very, very sad. And that was the church fought and split over the whole areas of who Christ was. And I won't take time to go into the different divisions, but the church of the East was considered heretical at that point. And why the church in the West, when I say West, I'm not talking about America or Europe, but I'm talking primarily about, about, uh, about Turkey here. As, as they fought over these these, these uh, differences about who Christ was, the church in the East went out and basically evangelized the East. And uh, so they, in that sense, they were, they were really missionary heroes. They, they ran an increasing opposition. Part of the problem was, as they spread the gospel to the East, they, uh, they were in the Persian Empire, and Rome and Persia were enemies for centuries. At that point, a lot of Christians that came to faith in the Roman Empire would flee to Persia because of the persecution. But when Christianity became legal in, in, um, in the Roman Empire in the fourth century under Constantine, Emperor Constantine, then these Persian Christians were looked on as being possibly dangerous or spies or fifth columnists. And so they faced a lot of persecution because we don't know if you're these Christians in Persia. Are you loyal to, to your religion or are you loyal to to your country or to, to where you're, you know, the people you're, you're among. And so they began to persecute the Christians there very severely. So hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed in the Persian Empire, even before Islam. And Zoroastrianism, uh, the religion at that time, uh, was also became a little bit in, quite intolerant as well. And so the, the Eastern churches suffered a lot of the Persians. And then the Muslims came in. And for a while, it looked like it was going to be much easier under them. Uh, the Muslims weren't as worried about their Christology uh, what they believe about Christ, and so for a while it was kind of a, a golden day, but then that too also uh, eventually uh, turned and changed, and so Christians began to be suffered severely then and under the the first uh, waves of Muslim 
uh, the caliphates and, and so on. And then finally the Mongols came in. The Mongols for a while were quite open to the church. Some of the Genghis Khan and his, his uh, follow, fellow Khans after him were actually had Christian wives and uh, they were quite open to Christianity. But again, in the, in the uh, early 14th century, in the late early 1300s, one of the Khans reverted, converted to Islam and we saw severe persecution begin to take place. And finally, the Eastern Church under Tamerlane was basically um, destroyed. Countless millions were probably killed uh, by Tamerlane. And at that time, the Islamization had pretty well taken place. So there's very little of the Eastern Church left. Their headquarters now is primarily, there's still a remnant in Baghdad, in, in Kurdistan, excuse me, uh, in, in Iraq, and, and also Chicago is, a, is a, probably the biggest center of, of the Eastern Church that's left today. Your grasp of the history of the church through the centuries is uh, fascinating, and you've written a book on this. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book, uh, Rekindling the Fire Amongst the Nations of Pentecost. Uh, I've read the book. It's fascinating. A lot of history, if you like history. Uh, this is the book to read. So tell us a little bit about this journey you were on to write this book. Well, it's been a lot of work there, Dennis, and I appreciate you so much reading it. Uh, since you read it, I've, I've re-edited it, so it's good correcting some of the mistakes that it's talk about of that. It's a book that, as, as I mentioned, since 1980, when I began to visit my first visit overseas, it's kind of haunted me. How did the how did the Bible Belt of the World, we might call it, how did that become, become an overwhelmingly Muslim? And so I began to study the different groups and how they converted to Islam and what happened, how what was the state of the church in those places, and um, ask them those kind of questions. Is it judgment? Is, is, is the reason why the church was, uh, a lot of the Christians in those days just thought it's because we're not faithful to, to God, we're not faithful to Christ. That's why God has allowed Islam to triumph over us like this. And there's probably a lot to be said for that. Um, there's also, of course, the, uh, the power of Islam in itself. You know, it's, it's basically um, when Muslims would go into an area they were not the majority right away. They, an army would might go in there and and declare that, you know, that um, the religion of Islam, you know, the religion of Allah is, is here. You do not have to convert, but you must uh, pay a tax if you don't convert or and be you know, what we call demi, a, a kind of a, a, a protected minority under Islam. With time, you can kind of see what might have happened as protected minorities without full rights, you know, the uh, people then gradually, it made less and less sense as they as they continued to grow. You know, as their as their families would 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 uh, the next generation or two would probably not see any reason to stay Christian um, and and be a second class citizen when they all they do is convert and say you know say the Muslim creed and they would become fully members of the society. And so with time, you just gradually you begin to see a wearing down. Some places it took a couple hundred years for the for the majority of people to become Muslim. Other places it was quicker, depending on probably how much Christianity they had or how much other religions they had. North Africa, the church probably never really was very strong outside of the Latin those that spoke Latin. Uh, and, but most people out in the villages did not. They were Berbers, and and that they they converted to Islam quite easily because they didn't know they didn't know their own faith very well. Other places like Egypt. Uh, where they had a stronger foundation faith, they resisted Islam much much longer, and there's still a, a strong minority there that are, are Christian. Turkey was a very slow process. Turkey was still about 30% Christian as late as the 1900s, so it was a very slow process. But it was uh, gradually um, more and more people either converted or, fl or left or fled, 
And uh, after the First World War is when the, finally the, the, the vast majority of some Christians were killed. You know, the estimates are, are quite high and uh, more, more, more people just uh, then converted to, to Islam. So I, a lot of times you might see people that had really converted quite recently in the last few decades, few generations. And some of them might still remember they had a great grandma that was a Christian at one time or something like that. And so I believe one of the things that we, we need to pray for is these people that have a Christian heritage, no matter how far back it goes, that they'll be curious about the faith of their ancestors. And I, I think as the Islamic world is becoming uh, less, um, less confident in a sense, terrible things that have happened in the Islamic world, like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, have really been a very shaming experience for a lot of Muslims. And many of them are really beginning to explore their faith. And I think it's a time for the Prince of Peace to really proclaim. Thank God, that's why I love Sat 7 so much, because you're proclaiming the gospel in those very places that at one time were Christian and that are now under overwhelmingly Muslim. The groups that uh, I'm talking about primarily speak the five language. The five groups in Turkey are first speak Turkish. The uh, three of those were in Iran, who all speak Farsi. And then, of course, there's Mesopotamia and Egypt and Libya. They speak Arabic. And so those are three. And the Kurds are divided among four countries. But each of those countries, they almost all either speak Persian or, or Farsi, Kur- Turkish or Arabic. And these are these uh, very important languages to Sat7. Yeah, Sat7 is, of course, based in the Middle East. And we have four satellite TV channels, uh, two channels in Arabic, covering the Arabic speakers. Uh, we have a channel that's in Turkish out of Istanbul. Uh, Sat7 Turk, and then there's Sat7 Pars, which is a Farsi as well as Dari language satellite TV channel. And so we're in the Middle East. Uh, we have a Middle Eastern leadership, and we want the church in the Middle East to make their claim to a biblical Christianity in a culturally relevant, appropriate, positive way. So we don't repackage content from the West. We allow the church that's in there, the church, capital C. And so it's a, we have a partnership with a lot of these churches where they are today. And of course, now everything's streaming on websites, and then we just launched a very significant, intentional digital strategy and have our own app, and all the satellite TV channels are streaming on the apps at 7 Plus, and that's available free of charge in the App Store. So people can sat7, sat7usa.org to learn more, or they can go to the international site, sat7.org and learn more, and then download the app, Sat7, S-A-T-7-P-L-U-S.org. Download the app, and uh, it's a great conversational starter as you meet people from these various languages who are many times here in the States, and I meet them all the time and use the app to start a conversation. So people of the of Pentecost are the primary viewership of Sat7 broadcast in the Middle East and North Africa today. That's what makes it so uh, so so crucial. Sat Seven's ministry is so crucial. The very places, the very peoples that uh, Acts Two is written about are the very languages that you broadcast in. So, where's the best place for people to purchase your book? Uh, probably on Amazon. Yeah, they can look at it on Amazon. It's called "Rekindling the Fire of Pentecost," and then the subtitle is "How the People of the Bibles Became Muslims: Why Many Are Coming to Jesus." And, and they can uh, also you can also search uh, by author Dr. Bob Brenneman. It's under Robert Robert Brenneman. Robert Brenneman. B R E N N E M A N. It'll take you more than one evening to get through it. There's a there's a lot of great history in the book. It'll help you understand better 
the journey the church has taken from Pentecost to where the church is today across the Middle East. Well, I try to do in the book too, although the, when I write the history, it's it's pretty, you know, it's pretty, uh, I guess it's pretty deep and scholarly. I've also tried to tell a lot of stories in the book. Each chapter begins with kind of an imaginary story. This is what it must be like. What would be what it would be like to be a father? And uh, your your kids come up to you and say, Dad, why are we staying Christian? It doesn't make sense. You know, we're a minority. We get no rights. What's what's the purpose? You know, why was Dad trying to you know explain? Well, this is why we stay Christian. <laughs> you know, and and so on. Or there's also uh, stories of people have come to faith. There's some conversion stories and other things like that. So I, it's not just hopefully it's not just reading a straight history, which can be kind of boring. But there's there's some mixture in with it. Uh, it can make it a little more enjoyable for the reader. And you're now just uh, retiring, uh, trying to retire. You're still teaching mm-hmm. some, but uh, available to explain more this uh, fascinating topic of the ethnic groups from Pentecost and where they are today. So if All you right. want Dr. Sure. Robert Brenneman to come and uh, share with your group, uh, reach out to him or reach out to us and uh, we can connect you to uh, Robert, the work that he's done. So again, uh, check on Amazon for this fascinating book. Bob, great to have you on this podcast. And thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Dennis. It's an honor to do anything with SAT7. I believe in the mission of SAT7 very, very strongly. So thanks again for joining this episode of the Unconventional Ministry Podcast. Thank you. In our changing world, there are more ways than ever to do ministry. SAT7 as a broadcast media ministry is changing how ministry is done. Through innovative approaches, collaborative efforts, broadcast satellite television, web streaming, and social media, SAT7 is making a difference. Visit SAT7 online today at sat7usa.org to learn ways you can be a part of this kingdom work. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. If you know of an unconventional ministry approach, please introduce us. We'd like to have them on as guests. Thank you again for joining this episode of the Unconventional Ministry Podcast. Thank you.